I, I would like for you to take a moment, and it, and it might not take very long for you to do this thing, but I want you to think of something that really gets under your skin. Something that, you know, maybe it's a pet peeve, something that really, really bothers you. Uh, Randy and his sister are here today, <laughs> and for some reason they can't keep it together. I don't know what's going on over there. Uh, no, but what's something that really gets under your skin? Now, let's, you know, there are different levels to these kinds of things that get under your skin. For example, when I walk into a clothing store, <laughs> when I walk into a clothing store and uh, there's like a, there's a table with stuff folded on it and uh, it doesn't, it's not folded correctly or whatever, that gets under my skin a little bit. And I have found myself at times uh, blacking out for a minute, and when I come to, the table is all organized. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on there with that. So, so that's something that sort of gets under my skin, but you know, it's not, it's not that big a deal, right? But then we have other things that are a little bit more inflammatory, that when they happen, it sets us off faster than anything else. And I think uh, one of the most common um, things there would be when you're driving and other people do something because you know when you're driving, you're driving correctly and everyone else is stupid and not paying attention and not looking around and not doing what they're supposed to. When you think about relationships, sometimes in relationships we have things that get under our skin with other people that we are able to say, let go of. It annoys us a little bit, but we're able to say, you know, it's not that big a deal. I can let this go. I am going to be so gracious to you that I am not going to hold this thing against you. We're very kind in that way. And then there's other things that push us farther and farther until finally maybe there's one thing that is our breaking point. You've gone too far with this one. Whatever it may be, I want you to keep those things in the back of your mind as we start our study here this morning. And this may really annoy you, and now it's all you're going to hear, but my boots are really squeaking on the stage, so I'm going to try to keep that to a, to a minimum. I have to pick up my feet today. We are in week five of our study of the Exodus story, and we have covered a lot of ground over these past four weeks. And maybe something that you've seen is that the Exodus story is a pretty complicated story. You know, uh, it, those of us who grew up in the church and grew up hearing this story, you know, from the time we were little, it seems that the narrative just moves from one thing to another. It all happens and everything just comes out being okay. But that's before I got my hands on it, right? And it becomes much more complicated of a story. And over the last two weeks, uh, we have studied one of the most significant moments between God and his people that is recorded in the Bible. And that's Moses talking to... That's right, the fiery, unburning bush. Thank you. And in this encounter, God introduced himself to Moses and told him that he had a job for him. All I need you to do is go back to Egypt, the place where they want to kill you and where your people don't like you, and tell Pharaoh to set these people that don't like you free. That's all you have to do. And Moses, knowing that he was not quite the right person for the job, pushed back on that request, but in the end, he relented. And God promised him 
that he would give him everything he would need. But in spite of that, Moses still had to step out in faith, hoping that this God he had heard of but had only just met would deliver on his promises. That's a pretty taxing story in and of itself. It's a conversation that, at least for me, I would need a nap afterwards, having that kind of conversation with God. Well, today we're going to cover the next 13 verses, and that's all there are today, 13 verses. But in these 13 verses, unfortunately for us, there are three issues that we are going to be forced to reckon with, and some of them are pretty big. And at the core of these issues are questions. Questions about uh, what our understanding of God is. Who is he and why does he do the things that he does? And furthermore, how do we deal with decisions that God makes that seem to be, well, let's just put it this way, that we don't like and that we wish he had made another decision? Now, we need to treat these questions and these thoughts fairly because this is not like I prayed for this job and didn't get this job, which is disappointing, right? This is a much bigger deal on some of these levels. And in fact, the first issue we're going to talk about today is one that has driven people away from God. And so the first issue that comes up is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's how this passage starts out. So let's look at verses 18 through 23 of Exodus chapter 4. So Moses has uh, just left this encounter in God, with God, and in verse 18, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. That's kind of a weird way for him to frame this trip, isn't it? It's just like a fact-finding mission. Now, the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Okay, this is a problematic passage. And even though you might have explanations in your mind, because this episode has been approached and studied from every angle in order to uh, help it say what we don't think it said, what we think it, you know, it is saying, to, to get away from that message, even though the message seems to be pretty, pretty straightforward. Now, some curiosities I want us to acknowledge really quick. Moses' staff is no longer Moses' staff. What is it? It's the staff of God. It is through this that God helped Moses, you know, perform these miracles and signs. So he now calls it the staff of God because it has these miraculous powers. But they're coming from God himself. So all of this in talking about uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart starts out with an interpretation of what it means for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. 
If God, if God is hardening his heart, then what is he essentially doing? Well, let's just put it this way. If something is soft, right, like really, really smushy and something falls on it, what's it going to do? It will probably stay there. If something is hard and something falls on it, what's it going to do? It's going to bounce off. This is the problem. When God says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, is he taking away Pharaoh's ability to respond to the things that are happening around him? The answer is yes. But that's an oversimplistic yes. So we need to understand, okay, what does that mean? Is God removing Pharaoh's free will and replacing it with something that God wants instead? The answer is no. Wait! (laughs) How can it be yes that he is taking away Pharaoh's ability to respond, but he is not replacing what Pharaoh would have done with God's own will? How does that work? And if you want to touch a pressure point with people who do not believe in God, if you want to touch a pressure point about God, this is a good place to start. God taking away someone's free will. We hate the idea that God would do this. We hate the idea that God would take away someone's ability to decide what to do and how to do it. Side note, we also blame God for the repercussions of our own free will, but that's another discussion for another time. But what is even more troublesome In this particular example, and we don't even have to go look for it, it's given to us right here. What does Pharaoh's hard heart directly lead to? The death of children. Okay? It leads directly to the death of children and the suffering of his people. This passage is a problem. It really is. And it's one that we struggle to wrap our minds around. And this doesn't just come up here. The subject of Pharaoh's hard heart comes up over and over and over and over and over again. Repeatedly throughout the entire Exodus account. Now, even if you know how you want to answer this problem, we need to sit for a moment and recognize that there is not a simple answer to what is being said here that's going to make everybody happy. Meaning no matter how you explain it or break it down, there are still going to be those who are offended by what is happening between God and a very unsympathetic character within this narrative. Sometimes we do a disservice to those that struggle with these kinds of passages by acting like the answer is so simple. Well, it's just this. This is all that's happening. But I think we've seen through the stories of Jacob and Joseph and now Moses that things are rarely simple and easy to understand. Why? Because relationship between God and his people is, in fact, complicated. And one of the best things that you can do for people who are struggling with ideas or thoughts like this is to recognize as a person of faith that they're right. It is complicated. 
and that there are questions. Some that we have wrestled with and come to some sort of an answer, some sort of an answer, and others that we continue to wrestle with and don't quite know how we still feel about it. It's important for us to recognize those things because those things are real and those are feelings and thoughts that anyone can relate to. What's one of the greatest criticisms of Christians? Hypocrisy. That we act like we have figured everything out and that this whole thing is easy. It's not. And, and the tragic thing about that is we know better than anyone how difficult a life of faith in God is. Is it good? Absolutely. But it's challenging, isn't it? So let's get into this by asking this first question. What is the point of this conversation? What is it that God wants to accomplish through this? So Moses approached Jethro and received his blessing to leave. So God, at that point, as Moses is going to leave, he has Jethro's blessing, launches into all the reasons why, number one, it's time to go, and what God has already done to help Moses succeed in this whole adventure. And he tells him, first of all, those who want to kill you are dead. Okay, now that's just a statement of fact, all right? Did God kill them? We don't know. There's no indication of that. As far as we know, they're just dead. So let's just leave it at that. And secondly, he says, you have these signs and wonders I am given you, so perform these signs and wonders when you get there. But here's the problem, God says. Pharaoh's not going to accept these signs and wonders that you are going to give him. And, and, and what, what does God say specifically within this passage? When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. So what is he saying will happen? You are going to perform these signs and wonders, but they are not going to work. Why? Because God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. If this is all you read about this encounter, all of the greatest fears about what this means are true. Not only that God is taking someone's free will away, but that God is manipulating a more difficult and painful outcome for those who are involved, right? I mean, just on the surface, that's what it says. So here's where the questions arise. Number one, is God making this happen? Is God creating the conflict between Pharaoh and the Hebrew people and ultimately Moses? Here's the other problem. What he says here down at the bottom this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. That sounds like a vengeful statement from an angry God. Do you know why it sounds that way? Because it is. A vengeful statement from an angry God. So let's face it, the, the Hebrew people did not have an easy life while in Egypt. They encountered brutal treatment, slavery, ruthless work, and the killing of potentially an entire generation of their own children. 
So this threat on the part of God didn't come out of nowhere, i.e. God did not invent these actions that he says he will perform against Egypt. But are we comfortable with God saying this or feeling this way? Probably not. You might be. You might be. But even if we are, there is something kind of sticky about God saying he's going to kill children. Right? And promising that that will happen. So we need to take note, and this is not for us to split hairs, but it's to pay attention here to what's going on. God says, I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, which means, has he hardened Pharaoh's heart yet? Well, we don't know, but we know exactly in that moment, not yet, because he's talking about this is going to happen in the future. This statement occurs again in chapter 7, verse 3, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason. If Moses shows up and Pharaoh's heart is hard, but God has not yet hardened his heart, then what does that mean? It means that Pharaoh has a hard heart before God intervenes at all. Okay? Right? That, that seems, like, it seems like a fair statement. Which means that Pharaoh is going to have an opportunity to respond to the things that Moses and God are doing on his own. Now, the next seven references after this one to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart. So in 7, 13 to 14, 22, 8, 15, 9, 30, all these ones, Pharaoh has hardened his own heart before God is said to have hardened it, which the first time it's said that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart is in chapter 9, verse 12. We're in chapter 4, right? So that means in almost five chapters, in almost five chapters, that much time and events that, and, and things have passed before God actually hardens Pharaoh's heart. And in fact, God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart until after the sixth plague. So Pharaoh has refused to do anything through uh, the plague of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the death of Egypt's livestock, and boils. That's, that's a pretty good track record of a hard heart. Although, after boils, it says that God hardened his heart. But then, in the next plague, which is the plague of hail, <laughs> this is, yeah, this is true. In the next plague, which is the plague of hail, Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. So he's hardened his own heart through these first six plagues. God hardens his heart after the plague of boils. And then the plague of hail happens, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. And if you read through the story, you see how the story is very clear, very clear, 
about who is responsible for Pharaoh's heart. And it spells it out in each case. And it's significant to note that each of those plagues that happened before God hardened Pharaoh's heart at all were devastating to his people. And we'll get to that when we read through some of those accounts. And yet, even though those things were devastating to his people and they did not affect the Hebrews at all, what did Pharaoh do? He refused the request to let them go and worship. Pharaoh showed that his heart was hard over and over again without any action from God. Now, Again, like I said, this is going to come up and again and again throughout the plagues, so we're not done talking about this idea. But here's the core question that we need to consider coming out of this. And we need to give these questions some air, because this is ultimately what it will boil down to. Is God right to do what he deems necessary, even if we do not like that particular decision? Now, I know you all want to say yes, but that's why I said, give this question some air. Okay? We need to give this question some air. Because again, the principles that are introduced are difficult principles to deal with. And they get back to what your understanding of God is. So that was fun. Let's follow up with this little chestnut. Uh, Moses left for Egypt, and on the way, God decided to kill him. Um, Seems odd, and particularly in the way it's presented to us. Uh, It's a curious event for which we're not really given any context. The author doesn't try to explain what is happening and why. But fortunately, there's enough for us in this little story to figure some things out. So let's look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. That's how this story is introduced, okay? Moses uh, was going to be put to death by God, but Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said, so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Okay, so what is this about? Um, The first thing that we need to recognize is that even though the author uh, kind of reports it this way, God is not upset for an arbitrary reason, i.e., he has not simply decided to kill Moses just because. All right? So there's something going on that is not described to us. You know, God had gone to all the work to convince Moses to go to Egypt only to kill him while he was on the way. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, Moses is going to do what God has asked him to do. So what's going on? Well, we can sort of figure out what the problem is by looking at what solved the problem. Okay? So Zipporah understands somehow that God is going to kill Moses. And she does, at least in line with this story, one of the most odd things she could possibly do, which is she takes up a knife, pulls down her son's pants, circumcises him on the spot, 
and throws the bloody foreskin on to Moses' feet. Number one, ew. Number two, I hope she was at least kind of careful with this whole exercise. But this action caused God to let Moses alone. So what is it that God was so worked up about? Well, Moses' son wasn't circumcised. That's the problem. Now, okay, why is this such a big deal? And why would God see fit to kill Moses over the fact that this was not done? Well, what was the role of circumcision in the relationship between God and his people? Circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant. It showed that God was the God of the Hebrew people, and the Hebrew people belonged to God. That out of the entire world, this people had been called out to be in relationship with him, that they were chosen and set apart for him. So to God, the circumcision thing is a big deal. Is a big deal. Why wasn't Moses' son circumcised? Well, we don't know exactly why. Uh, We can deduce that since Moses had fled the Hebrew people, married a Midianite woman whose father was a priest, that Moses did not see why it would be necessary to circumcise his son. If that's not what the Midianite people did, would Moses do that? Well, probably not. We have already noted several times that Moses has a real lack of identity coming into all of this. So it's not like he would necessarily say, we need to do this because we are a Hebrew family. He doesn't even feel that way. So, if Moses didn't see the need, is God then irrationally mad because Moses didn't do something he didn't know he was supposed to do? Well, we're not given that information either, but we can deduce from what Zipporah does that this issue has been on the table. That there has been some sort of discussion about it. Did Moses not want to do it? We don't know. Did Zipporah not want to do this to her son? Maybe she thinks it's some sort of brutality. We don't know. But we know that the subject came up because when God decides to kill Moses and Zipporah recognizes it, she immediately circumcises her son. And that, that blood covenant is upheld and God relents on wanting to kill him. So we know that what was done, and we know how it caused God to back down. So this is a really big deal to God. So why is this such a big deal to God? Other than this is a sign of the covenant. I mean, you would think that God could maybe let down on some of that, but I think we get a clue when we look at the encounter between Moses and God at the burning bush. If you want to turn back to chapter 3, you're welcome to, but... When Moses encountered the fiery bush that was not burning, 
What is the first thing God told him to do? Take off your shoes. Why? Because this ground is holy. Now, remember, Moses doesn't know this God very well. And he has come from a land of many gods. So when, Mos- when God tells Moses to take off his shoes because this ground is holy, what is he telling Moses? I am not like the other gods you have experienced. I am the one God. I am holy, distinct, unique, set apart. And whatever you have known before this moment, none of those things are true in comparison to me. This is who God is. He is the one true God who cannot simply be approached like you could these other gods. What is it then if holiness is an issue for God, this unique and set apart and distinct, why is circumcision so important to him personally? It's important because it's God's people recognizing that not only are you holy and set apart and distinct, we are as well. We are holy, set apart, and distinct for you. We do not worship any other gods. You called us out, God, and through this act, we say that you are our God and we are yours. Okay, so in that context, what does it mean then that Moses didn't circumcise his son? It's so offensive to God that he wants to kill him. That's what it means. Because ultimately, when Moses or Zipporah or however it happens, they decide not to circumcise him, what are they rejecting? Yeah, they're rejecting God's own call on them. They're rejecting the idea to be set apart and to be his and his alone. They are choosing to have Moses' son be just like who? Everybody else. And God for, can't understand why they won't just do it. Why they won't acknowledge his presence, acknowledge his covenant. So God, after having worked through this, however that happened, decided to kill him in response. Because God is not a God to be trifled with. But something important for us to note. Could God have killed Moses if he had really wanted to? Of course. Of course he could have. So what does it say then that Zipporah has the time to perform emergency surgery? Did God want to kill Moses? No. What did God need from them? He needed someone to say, I get it. We're yours. And to make this acknowledgement. It's not an accident that it's blood on Moses' feet that saves him. It's a tie to God and to them. This leads us to a third issue, which you might be surprised by this, you might not. I don't really think it's an issue for us, but I just want to bring it up here because that's what I do. Uh, 
The intervention of Zipporah is a moment that has often been discussed and um, not appreciated, let's say, by, by previous biblical scholars. And there are some who have been offended because how is it that a Midianite woman came in between Moses and God? It seems sort of like a silly question to me on this side of the story because what would they have preferred? That she not act and Moses die? I mean, aren't we glad there was an adult in the room? Right? Who says, this is what needs to be done. But it tells us something significant as well. Moses shows here, right before he embarks on this mission, that he needs help with this whole endeavor. And you know, he said to God, at the bush, he said, I, I, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. And God said, I made mouths. What's your problem? I just can't do it. And he says, fine. Then I'll give you your brother-in-law Aaron. He will speak to you. He will do all of these things. God, or Moses needs help. And I, for one, am grateful that his wife stepped in on his behalf. My wife has stepped in on my behalf at certain times, and I'm grateful for that as well. So here's the question that I think we need to ask coming out of this. Is God right to demand that he be, treat, that he be treated with the respect he deserves on the penalty of death? It's a major question that we have coming out of this, because it's not too hard to read that from our perspective and say God is being unreasonable in this. So is God right to have this response? Let's get to the last section here very briefly. Uh, picking it up in verse 27. <clears throat> then Lord's, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their, their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Okay, this is a really significant ending to this part of, you know, really chapter 3 and chapter 4. All the build-up to Moses returning and all the fear he has and how is this going to work and what, I'm, what am I going to do, and he gets there and what happens? It all goes perfectly. What does this remind you of? Because it, it reminds me of Jacob being so afraid to go meet Esau, and then he meets Esau, and Esau is like, brother, let me meet my family. Get in here, right? It's just all the buildup and fear and worry that Moses had. He gets there, and all of that anxiety is inconsequential. Moses did it to himself. Because God had promised, what? I will be with you, and, and, and these things will go okay. And so he gets there, and Aaron, his family member, uh, is happy to see him. That wasn't a given, but he embraces him, and Moses tells him about everything, and then Aaron's like, well, let's go talk to the elders, and Moses is like, okay, so they go see the elders, and what happens? 
Aaron talks and explains the whole thing to the elders. And then they show them the signs like bam and bluey and woohoo, right? And all the things happen. And everyone is like, hallelujah, <laughs> praise the Lord. And they all worship God together. It's an unexpected result happening so quickly. And there are some things we need to note about it. This is the first time we have seen a reference to worship since Jacob. So this gives us some hope for two reasons. One, they still recognize how to worship, even though there's no really form or shape to it, because there's no temple, there's no sacrifices, there's none of those things. But this is their response, and their response is to one thing directly. God has heard your cries, and God has sent me to deliver you. All of this tells us what this story is about. Look, the problem is not going to be between Moses and the people and God, at least not in this section. In this section, the problem is between whom? God and Pharaoh. The problem is between God and Pharaoh. And now, when we look back, we realize that when God said these things about Pharaoh, what was he doing? He was identifying his enemy. Not just the enemy of the people of God, his enemy. The one that he knew he was going to be facing. And when he sends Moses and Aaron and they talk to the people, they all worship God in, in unity. It's an amazing moment. I mean, just think about it in the context of having this moment of corporate worship when they haven't felt God's presence for so long. What must that have been like for them? It leads us to one final question. You can go to that question there, Jed. Is it not right that God acted out of love to deliver his people from slavery? Okay, three questions. Three difficult questions, which we have some sense of what we want to say, but they're difficult questions, right? Is God right to do what he wants when he wants how he sees fit? Which ultimately, when we ask these questions, and we look at these verses, and we talk about these points, which again are important points, we are asking one major basic question. Does God have the right to make the decisions he makes? Regardless of whether we understand or agree with what that decision is. And though we may not say it out loud, we, yes we, in this room, we want God to justify himself to whom? To us. This needs to make sense. To me. 
I need to feel good about this. And there is a part of us that wants to feel good about every decision that God makes and every event that transpires to which we assign God in this world. And we call out to God to reinforce our worldview to support us in however it is that we see things and how we understand them. And when this does not happen, and we don't get the reassurance we need, or worse yet, we're stuck with this giant question we don't know how to answer. And we're afraid that the answer might be what we think it is. What is our response? Who do we question first? Is it ourselves? No. We question God. God, how could you, whatever it is. And we pour out our feelings into this one moment. Now, I want to make something clear here. God wants us to interact with him. He wants you to cry out to him, to hear uh, the cries of your heart. He wants us to struggle, to question, to wrestle with who he is and how he is working in the world. And God knows that for us, this is necessary work. It's necessary work toward our understanding of who God is and his love for us and what it means for us to be in relationship with him. If it's not a struggle for us, then we're missing something. Because being a faithful follower of God requires some struggle. It does. By its very nature. But in the middle of this struggle with us trying to understand or, or feel good about it or whatever it is that we're dealing with in this moment, God is engaging us, but he wants us to remember something the whole time. He is God. And we are not. So does God want to give us wisdom and insight and answers? Yeah, he really does. Does he have to? Answer to me? Answer to you? No. This is us seeking to understand him. And understanding is great. But him having to prove to us that he was right, and I use that word intentionally on all the questions, that he was right in doing so is not his job. So the main question that we are left with then, I know I've said main question a lot, but we have a lot of main questions. <clears throat> the heart of this is who is this God to you? Is he the creator of the world, the one true God in a field of many gods? The one who loves his people and does what he deems necessary for them? Is he the God who protects and who strikes? Is he the God who does what he believes necessary? Let me rephrase that. What he knows is necessary in order to lead his people where they want them to go. Or, if he is not those things, then what is he? He is one God among many 
who does not do what we think he should or act, why he would act, and why would we accept him if he is just some unknown figure telling us what to do? Now, the reason why I bring that up in that way is because there are a lot of people that see God in this way. Why should I follow him? Why should I do what he wants me to do? He wants to take away my free will. I like my life. I don't want to live my life differently. All of these things come out in conversation. Well, they come up in conversation even with us, don't they? How can God want this for me? And at the bottom of all of this is who sets the standard? Is it God or is it us? If it's him, then guess what? You're not going to like everything he does. You know why? Because God is not doing everything he does just for you to feel good about it. And that's a pretty good thing. Because if everything felt really good to Georgia, and everything matched what Georgia wants and how she wants it and what she wants to do, and God does that for Georgia, we've got a room full of people that are going to be disappointed. Right? Not Georgia. Georgia would be perfectly happy. And it's at this moment that maybe we realize that it is so good that God acts in bigger ways that don't just involve you or me and what we think should happen. Because you know what? The truth is that God is not like other gods who simply try to appease the worshiper in front of them. He is holy, which means he is set apart and distinct and unique from all other gods. The ground where he is is holy. His people are holy, set apart for him alone. And he hears the cries of his people. And when he hears the cries of his people, what does he do? He rescues them. In a really complicated and difficult process. And you know, in that rescue... There are some things that fall by the wayside because God deems that's what has to happen. And that includes God putting his enemies under his heel, which he does with Pharaoh, who considers himself to be a God on earth. You see, that's why Pharaoh is his enemy. It's because Pharaoh steps forward and says, I am a God whatever I say goes. And he thinks he has the right to stand before God when God asks something from him and to say what? No. Because I, Pharaoh, have the authority to say no to you. And this entire process is leading Pharaoh to one conclusion that he fights every step of the way you pharaoh are not god this is god 
good luck standing against him. And it's important for us to note that God doesn't have to talk Pharaoh into standing against him. Pharaoh's ready. Pharaoh's ready for this fight. As we close this morning, I want us to be really grateful uh, or to begin to understand how to be grateful uh, for the way that God does things. You know, it's true with anything that, you know, if you're presenting something or whatever it is, like, people will pick on the one thing that's wrong. Uh, I remember I was preaching years ago, and there was someone uh, in the church at the time uh, where I was previously who would watch my slides. And if there was a slide that was wrong, for whatever reason, he would immediately approach me after church and say, your slide was wrong. To which I would say, well, why don't you make slides? Let's see how your slides go. No, of course I didn't say that, but it's, you know how it is, right? There are so many good things, but there's one small thing, and and that small thing dominates the discussion. And so, while we need to recognize that there are difficult questions and difficult things, we need to rejoice over the fact that there are so many good things that God does all the time that we don't even consider that we don't even think about. But boy, if God steps out of line in this one way, right? Maybe uh, what we need then is to be more aware, eyes more open, ears open to all the things that God does around us and practice thanking him for those things. Instead of focusing so much on why didn't you do this or that. And I got to tell you, I have moments in my life where I have thought repeatedly, couldn't he have taught me that in a different way? Unfortunately, the answer is probably no. (laughs) But we have a God who, because he is set apart, because he is unique, because he is the one God, He pours out his love for us in a million unknown ways. And we should be a people who are grateful for that. That when we come into contact with him, our response is to praise him for hearing us and to fall on our knees and worship him. Because he is our God and we are his people.